Hello there. I'm Victor Marlon from the Ten Pence Arcade Podcast. When I'm not trying to beat my co-host Sean at Arcade Games, I fire up my Android XL for some Atari 8-bit goodness. You are listening to the Player Missile Podcast. It's August 1981. In this episode, we have an interview with James Haig, who was published in Analog and Antic, wrote the book Halcyon Days, and maintains a giant list of classic game programmers. Also, an update I'm making a little progress on Star Raiders. And for magazine coverage, the computer has a lot of good articles, as well as, coincidentally, an article on a division algorithm on 6502 that I can use for Star Raiders. Creative Computing has an article on the original Space War, on the PDP 1, and the Outpost Atari is begun by Dave and Sandy Small. And in Softside, there's some stuff. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 11. again welcome back to the player missile podcast i had hoped to get this out earlier but you know i just can't seem to yeah i feel so much pressure to get these things out and i just can't seem to get them out faster than about three weeks so i don't know if you're, if you're still listening to this you're probably okay with that it's just it, it is what it is it makes me really appreciate a podcast like no quarter who apart from one or two times they've really been weekly for almost for two years and then recently on twitter they had a week off and then another week off and then the bombshell dropped that the no quarter podcast was going to stop it's right around april fool so i figured oh it was just april fool's joke you know funny not quite as funny as, as sorry charlie but you know still it's like okay give him credit for trying and then it looked like it was official not funny kept going on and on and man i can tell you how bummed i was about that no quarter was the first podcast i really listened to regularly it was kind of like the you know, the one that introduced me to podcasts, the one that got me thinking about, oh, maybe there's podcasts about Atari, and then I found Antic, and then I found Rob O'Hara's podcasts. At the time, it was mostly You Don't Know Flack, and then he branched out into Sprite Castle and stuff. But on one of the You Don't Know, you Don't know Flack episodes, he talked about doing your own podcast, and he had enough suggestions that made me think, oh, maybe I can do it, and said, so really, that there's a direct line from No Quarter through Rob O'Hara's podcast to this podcast itself. And the idea that no quarter was shutting down is like, you know, I had, it was the whole stages of grief going through. And then there was a glimmer of hope. I feel fantastic and, still alive. and maybe it's coming back. Mike McGinnis posted a thing on Facebook explaining what was going on. There was going to be a new co-host. And so, yeah, now episode 126 is out with a new co-host, Rob O'Hara. I was kind of wondering who the new co-host would be, you know, of the podcasters that I listen to regularly. I thought, oh, Rob O'Hara would be a good choice because, you know, he knows so much about arcade stuff. He's owned so many arcade games, played a lot, talked about a lot of arcade stuff on his podcasts. I thought, that, oh, that'd be a great choice, but he's doing so many podcasts. I was like, oh, maybe he didn't have time. You know, as a fan, you think, oh, I would love to be the co-host of No Quarter, but then I, sort of myself, I don't think I'd be any good on multi-host podcasts because, uh, yeah, if you sell the raw audio of these podcasts, there's so many pauses that I have to take out. So many pauses. 
So hopefully everybody's caught up on No Quarter again at the new site. It's at nocorderpodcast.com. Listen to the first episode, and it's it's great. I will certainly miss hearing from Carrington as much, um, but I guess he's going to be on other podcasts. But yeah, like the like the first podcast you listen to, it going away is kind of like the end of an era, you know. But I'm looking forward to the new era of, of No Quarter. I listened to the first 5200 Super System podcast, and it's a fun show. You should listen to that one. You know, the 5200 and the 8-bits are really the same machine apart from the ROM and the crazy controllers, but all the programming techniques are virtually identical. And RK said that he listens to this podcast, even though he didn't have an Atari growing up. And I find that really cool. Sean from 10 Pence Arcade also listens to the podcast, and he, he didn't have an Atari growing up either. I think he had a Commodore. And I'm definitely, when the 64 comes out, I'm definitely going to start looking at the 64 a little bit and some of the Commodore magazines occasionally, just like, like I looked at, uh, at Soft Talk magazine last episode for the Apple II. So as I'm recording this, there's about a month away from the Atari party in Davis, California. So if you're out in the area, I hope to see you there. I will be there with a Raspberry Pi and some other stuff to give away, and I'll be showing some uh, emulation software on the Raspberry Pi. And hopefully I'll get time to build a controller setup, otherwise I'm going to have to borrow a controller from from Bill Kendrick. So we got some feedback. I had mentioned in the last podcast about the DIF format in um, spreadsheets. And so Wade from the Inverse Itasky podcast sent me back a note and he said, uh, Hey Rob, you may be curious about DIF usage for modern spreadsheets. I copied over in two formats, row-centric and column-centric, and I could get neither to import into Excel correctly. You have to use delimited text import because DIF isn't a native import format. I also had to set the character encoding to Windows uh, ANSI. You start by setting the delimiter to comma and the text marker to uh, period. It did pull everything into cells, but all into one row, no matter how he, I configured the import. So I guess I misunder, or I guess uh, I, because I, I thought DIF was a more standard format than it was. I remember seeing it somewhere but obviously not in modern stuff. So thanks, Wade, for checking that out. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I got some Twitter feedback from 8 Rocket, who said, The new robot overlord is epic. I appreciate that, and hopefully you are still not taking investment advice. Another tweet saying, What do you think of an Atari 8-bit programming contest in action? And I think, well, that'd probably be great, but I don't think I have enough, like, broad saturation of the Atari... Uh, community for that for me to really make much of a success of it. And plus, I don't really have a lot of time. Um, so yeah, I'd probably get more traction if it were somehow arranged through the Atari Bitbiters Bi- Users Club or Atari Age or something. But it's a neat idea, and I am happy to talk about current stuff that people write. So uh, I'll talk about that in a little bit more in, the, in a new section coming up here in a second. There's a tweet from Trevor Briscoe who sent out a link about Rescue on Fractalis, and he wrote up a sort of an overview of the game. And I sent a tweet back to him. It's just one of the, it's just one of the scariest moments I've ever had playing computer games. And I don't know. It's probably not much of a spoiler now, if, but uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's definitely a bit of a surprise that if you're just merrily going along and that little alien guy pops up when you're expecting a a regular pilot. <laughs> yeah, it's like I was hesitant to return to the game after that. I was just like. So this is just, yeah, it's too much when you're, when you're absolutely not expecting something. You know, you go into a horror movie or whatever and you sort of expect to be scared, but you're just playing along and this totally unexpected event happens. And, you know, I guess 
I, of course, had a pirated copy, but I guess there was no indication even in the manual. So yeah, really, <laughs> my heart rate increases even when I'm thinking about it right now. That's funny. Also on Twitter, I heard back from Bill Kendrick. I <laughs> put a little sped-up section in the last podcast because I'd heard from him that he listens at 1.2 times speed. And I just sped it up on Audacity thinking it would the that's how we would listen to it. But I guess he sent back a tweet and said that uh, the app he uses on Android called Podcast Addict speeds things up without altering the pitch. I haven't listened to me at 1.2 times speed for a whole podcast, so I'm not sure. still feel like myself normally is 1.2 times the speed of a normal person's talking anyway, so... All right, a new semi-regular slash occasional feature uh, will be listener-written programs. So if you've got some programs on the 8-bit that you want to share, either stuff you've written now or back when you had the Ataris originally, I'd be happy to think about including them in the podcast so you can send me a note. So just to, just to narrow it down, I'd, so I'd, I'd only be interested in talking about you know stuff written by you. Uh, and so you've got to have, also have a, a page or a GitHub or something that I can link to so other people can can see it and download it. And then, if you want me to talk about it, then just please send me a description because I may not have time to to play or, or look at everything. But if you're interested, I'd be happy to share some of the stuff that you've written for the 8-Bits. And Paul Nermanen of the Intellivisionaries podcast sent me some stuff. He uh, Some basic games, one of the first games that, or one of the first demos that he wrote is available. And I'll include a link to that. So it's a little a little scene in basic where he draws it out and has a little animated player missile guy going on in the background. And his website's pretty cool. It was composed entirely on his Atari Falcon. And the Falcon's the machine I wish I would have seen. I never even saw one, but it was a 68030 machine. I think it would have had 16 megs of RAM and, you know, enhanced graphics modes over the ST. Looks like a nice machine, but of course by that time the Atari was just way irrelevant compared to the PC. Well, in terms of market share, anyway. All right, let's talk a little tech. So if you just joined the podcast, this is a section where I'm going to try to modify the Star Raiders source code that's been um, reverse-engineered in order to increase the speed of the explosions. So the original re- reverse-engineering was done by uh, Sidney Cadeau and put up on GitHub. And so I forked the source code, and uh, I have it on my GitHub account, which I'll include a link to in the show notes. And... I assume it's a guy. Whatever program he used to do the original disassembly did a really did a pretty good job of creating like local loop variables and local sections that, that didn't have global scope. It figured out you know what code was between some branch statements and um, so there's. I assume it was a program that did it. I, I you know I assume he didn't go through by hand and do all this. And so my first task was to try to find the division algorithm or if there was only one. And you know being an 8K cartridge, I was assuming that there was only going to be one that would be called whenever the explosions uh, occurred. But I didn't really know, and, you know, again, I <laughs> I really had no idea what I'm doing. I'm just kind of going through, and I had some experience doing some disassembly, but nothing of this sort of scope recently. You know, my 6502 is pretty rusty. So looking through the, the code to f- try to find the division algorithm, it's, I don't really have a good sense of what one should look like, so I, I found a few references for some 16-bit division routines on some uh, 6502 support sites. And the algorithms are essentially the same as those used for longhand division, you know, that you learn back in elementary school or whatever, but on base 2 instead of base 10. So I looked through this one code, and there's uh, this one example, which, and I don't, <laughs> I've got to get a better sense of the 6502 assembly again, but at any rate, this one routine I found had a, an ASL statement, which is the arithmetic shift left, 
which if you think of the binary bits of a byte shifts all the bits left one and inserts a zero at the at the least significant bit and throws the most significant bit into the carry bit and the rotate instructions shift everything one to the left put the most significant bit into the carry bit but then use the previous value of the carry bit into the zero into the least significant bit so it's a way you can get higher precision shifts than only eight bits you can do like 16 bit or whatever shifts so yeah again i don't really understand this routine but i i just noticed the asl followed by, by the rol routine and say well maybe i'll search for that as it turns out it only happens in two places in the code and subroutine 65 and subroutine 73 and it seemed like subroutine 73 was more likely candidate uh, because the subroutine 65 isn't a loop and it's just sort of dropped straight through and so of the places that 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 referenced subroutine 73, subroutine 89 seemed like it might have been a, a candidate because it sets up some stuff and uses a variable that, that looked like it might be the correct value. It seemed like there were, it was hex 30, which is like 48 points. So it seemed like there maybe there's 48 points in the explosion. So I, I fired up the Atari 800 emulator and set a breakpoint at, um, at subroutine 89 and fired up Star Raiders and went to the Galactic Shark, hyperspaced, and I started shooting something. And as soon as the first as soon as I hit something, the, the program triggered the breakpoint and stopped. And so it seems like I might be right. So it seems like I may have found where the explosion routine is triggered, which I guess is a good first step. I thought also about comparing um, the already hacked version of Star Raiders, the one that has a few points in the explosions. But it seems like there's a... I couldn't do a binary compare easily because it seems like there are a lot of differences, a lot more. So I don't know if one is PAL maybe? I don't know, but there's a lot more differences than I would have expected just being a you know, an image of a cartridge, so I can't do a direct binary compare. Well, anyway, that's where I am right now, and I'm going to start fiddling with some... I try to change that variable that I thought was uh, the number of points in the explosion just directly, and it seemed like it sort of worked, but it messed up something else, and I just started getting all sorts of garbage on the screen, so there must be something else that's assuming uh, 48, you know, the number 48 being some other counter, some other reference. And uh, this, this is a bit technical, and uh, if you want even more technical stuff, there's a, a great Twitter account Twitter user 4am, well, I'll include a link to in the show notes, has these just phenomenally detailed and uh, entertaining write-ups of cracking Apple II protection. And so I know nothing about the Apple II, like sort of, it's all about disk controller and, and stuff, and I guess it's, it's so low level that you can do a lot of things with it. But if you're, if you're interested in technical stuff, I really encourage you to check this out. It's really, really entertaining write-ups and, and detailed documentation of it. Also in the show notes, I'll put in some references to the Open Apple podcast, because Quinn and Mike have, have had a lot of 6502 reference uh, documentation in their um, links in their show notes. So if you have any feedback about the text section, please let me know. I want to know if this is interesting. I still, I'm kind of curious to do it. And um, I don't know what kind of audience I'm getting or losing for this technical stuff. So uh, yeah, let me know what you think about it. As an aside, there's a great write-up on the Atari 2600 ET cartridge that was debugged and fixed. There was a link on archive.org that I saw on Twitter, I think. And um, through that, there was a link to the write-up of how this person went through and sort of debugged all the, the stuff and went through and changed the 6502 assembly. It's a really good write-up, really detailed. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I would really suggest you check that out. Include links to that in the show notes. Oh, and if you haven't checked out Antic Interview episode 29 with David Kramer of the Western Design Center, there's a lot of info about 6502 and how it's still relevant today and, you know, lots of background history and stuff when it was first released. So, yeah, it's a great interview. Check that out. They're doing lots of great interviews over at Antic. I just finished listening to, I think it's, is it episode 30 with um, Jerry Jessup? And that's a great interview. Wow, that might be my favorite of all the Antic interviews so far. He was the guy who star started as an intern at Atari and sort of worked his way through 
I just some some really great stories. So yeah, check that interview out. Oh, and randomly I found a YouTube video of a guy who reviews classic game stuff, and he reviewed the Wyco joystick, and he pronounced it Wyco. So I don't know, Wico, Wyco, who knows? But I always pronounced it Wyco for whatever reason. But it's funny, he just turned over the bottom of this this old Wyco joystick, and the, the foot pads on the bottom had melted just like mine did. Because instead of you know, like setting it down on the ground or setting it on a table and, and using the joystick, I'd hold it in my hand. And so the bottom like foot pads from the heat of your hand would just get all just like soggy, melted rubber. It's funny, the littlest things bring back so many memories. All right, let's go on to the magazines. Going to try something new here. Previously, I just read all the magazines um, on the PDF or on the Internet Archive website and would take notes, and then I'd go back later when I record and would kind of, like, summarize my notes. I've, I'm going to try this time. I've, I've actually marked up the PDFs using, like, highlight tools and stuff, and I'm going to kind of sit with the PDF in front of me and, and go through it. So we'll see how that goes, see if it's any different. So first issue is, uh, first magazine is Computes, issue number 15 for August 1981. Cover price is still 250 and on the, on the cover, the Atari stuff that says easy reading of the Atari joystick and restoring and updating data on the Atari. And there's a few pictures of the, of the Commodore Pet and there's a little Apple and a sort of stylized Atari Fuji on there. I haven't really mentioned this before on the table of contents. They sort of, they have a pretty, pretty detailed table of contents. And they list all the um, stuff they break out in the uh, in each Atari Gazette, but there's a there's generally a little few little doodles on the on the right hand side. Yeah, Atari's got an ad in the uh, in big type. It's got computers for people, and there's four or five quotes from uh, various computer magazines like singing its praises. I have a picture of the 800 on the bottom, and it says what computer people are saying about computers for people. There's an ad for CompuServe that has a five dollar an hour charge doesn't specifically show the Atari on there, but I think you can still access it. There's an article I haven't referenced before called The Beginner's Page, which is, they go over basic, and in this um, article they're talking about subroutines, and even get into recursion and stuff. There's an ad that said, Osborne awakens the Atari and puts it to work, and I was confused for a second because I thought Osborne Computer, but now they're talking about Osborne the Publishing Group, and um, yeah, it's Osborne McGraw-Hill, and so they did a bunch of, I think, did they do... Your Atari computer? Hmm. It's not listed here, but... Yes, they did. There's an article on basic one-liners to minimize code and maximize speed. And there's an editor's note that says, while this article refers to the pet, many of the suggestions apply to all basics. So yeah, there's still a lot of pet coverage here in 1981, even though the VIC-20 has been released. There's an article on the um, AY38910 sound chip, which I only recognize because I've heard it mentioned on uh, No Quarter a bunch of times because that was a common sound chip used in um, arcade games. So this is a hardware article. I think they're talking about how to add it, like to hack a TRS-80 to add one of these chips. There's an article about 650 machine language called uh, The Carry Bit, What It Is and How It Works. And The Carry Bit is it's one of the status flags on the 6502 that whenever an, op- an operation sort of exceeds the value of uh, 256. That should be 255. If you have an, a math operation that goes over 256, then you'll... No, seriously, dude, 255. Set the carry bit to let the next operation know that it, you've got something that was bigger than 256. Holy freaking cow, he keeps misspeaking. Hex FF is the largest single byte value, which is 255 decimal. 
And there's branch operations that, that depend or that can check for the carry bit. And apropos of the text section, there's another article on the floating point division routine that notes is uh, it's almost identical to the one that you used in elementary school to do long division. Of course, it's in binary. And it sort of goes over the sort of high-level overview and then um, proceeds to list out all the the 6502 assembly source. It looks different than the one I found on uh, reference on the 6502 stuff that I looked up on the web. There's an article on the practical aspects of assembly language programming, which looks like it's second part of a, a series that I missed last time. And then we get into the Atari Gazette, and the link featured on the cover, Restoring Data and Updating Data on the Atari. It's about the restore command in Atari Basic, which I don't really remember that well. Didn't really follow, so yeah, there you go. Hmm. But if you're interested in Atari Basic, you can try that article out. The next one is Easy Reading of the Atari Joystick, which is a machine language program similar to the Page 6 utility that they had in last month's compute. There's a little poem writer. It's a haiku generator. And there's a sort of isometric drawing program, like a, it's called Supercube Update, which is a, I think we covered this several issues ago, but this is like an updated program, updated version. And there's an Atari sound utility, uh, which says, have you ever wished you could get sound out of that little speaker hidden somewhere in your Atari? So it's how to access a little buzzing speaker. There's a teeny little machine language program that can tweak that speaker. There's like a 30-line Atari Basic version of Blockade for the Atari, which is like kind of like surround on the 2600. And the final article in the Atari Gazette is defining a line on the Atari, which is about graphics mode 8, where it looks like a little machine language like display list interrupt to change the um, background color to essentially all the colors in the rainbow. That's it for the Atari Gazette. There's a couple more ads for the Atari. The, uh, the Atari 800 with 32K RAM is now $759, which is $2,065 in uh, 2015 currency. And that's it for the compute. Alrighty, let's look at creative computing. This is the August 1981 issue, volume 7, number 8. It's got a sort of fantasy-style dragon on the cover. And the only Atari thing on the cover is how to cram more into your Atari. There's a big kind of sash in the upper right-hand corner that says The Legend of Space War, which we'll get into. So in my new workflow here, I'm kind of looking at the magazine on a PDF as I go. And um, the table of contents is generally divided into two columns. And they have this sort of computer, this like, I don't know, we call it now, I don't know, retro-futuristic sort of font for the sort of main headings. And they do. They list all the, you know, the major. They list all the articles and stuff in sort of a regular Helvetica type font. First thing I was interested in was there's an article on the TI ninety nine four, and I need to find out more about this machine. That was one of the things that I sort of considered buying when I was a kid, but then got the Atari. And I I know, you know, almost zero about the TI ninety nine four. I mentioned in one of the previous episodes. It's got like a, the, it's like a sixteen bit processor, but it's like stackless somehow. I don't know. I'm. It'd be interesting to find more out about it, but not in this one, <laughs> not in this podcast. There's an article on the National Computer Conference, which I hadn't heard before, and they they don't actually say where it is. I couldn't find out where they said it, where this thing actually took place. But there's a lot of exhibitors. They mentioned Atari mostly just by announcing Atari had some price reductions, which we sort of already mentioned in um, the podcast. Like the RAM modules are now uh, fifty bucks and hundred bucks for the. 8K and 16K RAM modules, respectively. 
there's a little blurb about these tiny sharp pocket calculators. I don't know if you remember them. They were this is actually the sharp PC twelve eleven pocket computer, I guess. Not not it's more than a calculator. It has one point nine K of RAM and it's got a a keyboard that has all you know twenty six letter keys plus the number pad and the symbols and stuff. And it's got a single line display with a like seventy uh what is it? No, twenty four characters and it can hold the programs up to seventy lines. Two hundred and fifty bucks for this. I remember sort of wanting this, thinking it'd be really cool to have a, a pocket computer. I ended up getting sort of a, a programmable where a lot of people got the HP sort of I forget what the 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 reverse pulse notation calculators, I forget what those are. A lot of people got those. I ended up getting a, a sharp. It was a smaller, less capable version of this, but it was kind of wide. It was probably I don't know, seven inches wide and three inches tall. But I think I didn't get that until eighty four, maybe. There's a huge article. It spans 14 pages. Including advertisements. On uh, the second creative computing chess tournament. We covered the first one. I forget what it was. It was in... I forget how many episodes ago, but there was another chess tournament where this guy ranked programs, and he does the same thing here with different programs. He sort of says that Sargon 2 is still the, the champion, and he thought there probably wouldn't be a serious challenger. And interestingly, he talks about playing... Atari chess, and I thought he was talking about the 800, the 400, 800 version of chess, but I think he's talking about the VCS. The Atari Video Chess is the name, and I think that's the VCS title. Oh yeah, there it is. He says uh, the video computer system. Yeah, so he's talking about the VCS version. And he thought there wouldn't be any serious challenger to the the last year's program, Sargon 2. But he said um, the Atari program really doesn't know how to play chess. Despite the strange graphics, um, it has an opening book like the best programs, and in play it seems to be free of the gross errors, and there are no obvious stylistic errors, which is really pretty amazing considering, you know, they stuffed it into, I think, what, is that a 4K cartridge? Yeah, they, he pitted Atari Video Chess against Sargon, and Atari actually won a game, but Sargon eventually took the match. Then there's an article about the origin of Space War, and this is the Space War game that was played on an oscilloscope. The original Space War, and I've actually seen this at the Computer History Museum up in um, Mountain View. So the author is J.M. Gretz, and talks about how he and a bunch of other people who were at uh, MIT got together and developed Space War. So it's on a PDP-1, and they're looking for some demonstration program. And they they found their the criteria for a good demonstration program was that, one, it should demonstrate. That is, it should show off as many of the computer's resources as possible and tax those resources to the limit. Two, within a consistent framework, it should be interesting, which means that every run should be different. And three, it should involve the onlooker in a pleasurable and active way. In short, it should be a game. So they started in 1961 on a PDP-1 machine, and went into 62, and they sort of they designed a custom controller for it, two directional potentiometer joysticks, one for the left and right rotation, and one for the thrust forward and back. And there's a button for fire. And it shows a little sort of crude drawing of the wooden mock-up that they did. One of the cool things is they actually used the real star data from uh, the ephemeris, the American ephemeris and nautical almanac. So they entered in all the stars to just above the fifth magnitude, and so all the background stars are actually the real stars and that you can see from Earth. And I'm not sure. The PEP one they have at the, the Computer History Museum in, in, in Mountain View that's probably not the original one, but uh, yeah, they have a, a real PDP-1, and it's you know room-sized, and they had Space War going, and when I saw it, they had actually one of the guys, and I don't remember his name, 
and one of the guys there who, who uh, wrote it was demonstrating it. So I'll link to the Computer History Museum, and if you're in the Bay Area, that should, definitely should be a stop that you should make. There's an article, uh, Putting Adventure in Adventure Games, which has a whole f- bunch of features for good games. It talks about realism, the pace of the game, flexibility, you know, so you're not too limited. There's got to be some incentives for to keep the players interested. Growth of the characters, and it's had some features of the poor campaigns are too many puzzles, like puzzles without enough story. So just kind of some sort of overview stuff for a game designer if you're going to design a role-playing game. The next article is the article alluded to on the covers, Ram Cram Techniques for Atari. And it's talking about the original adventure in 32K. The original adventure, I think, on the also on the PDP-1. He uh, calls it the... Um, oh, I guess I should... Who's the author? The author is Robert A. Howell. So he talks about the original Crowther and Woods adventure program and trying to stuff it into 32K of memory on the Atari. So it's a basic game. So he talks about all the stuff, all the sacrifices he has to make in the program to get it to fit in in, uh, 32K, like removing most of the comment statements, um, combining multiple logical lines into one physical basic line, because every time you enter a new number, it takes six bytes of memory. You know, a new line number in Atari basic. So he says it's 720 individual basic statements, but only 320 line numbers, which he says saves uh, almost 1K of memory. Another savings he says is uh, don't use constants. Put them at a variable and use that. Because each time there's a number that's a constant, requires require seven bytes of memory. And there's a bunch of other tips there, so it's, uh, it's an interesting read. I didn't see... Oh, yeah, and another thing he said was that... Uh, yeah, and then he has a list of like 16 memory-saving tips, including stuff like... Because Atari Basic tokenizes the code as it puts it into memory, that is, it doesn't store the full text that we type, like like the if command is then tokenized to a single byte instead of if, two bytes. So once it's tokenized and, and variables are entered in the variable name table, the variables are actually not removed from the variable name table when you save it to disk and load it. So if you save it and load it as a, as a tokenized program, all these old unused variables still exist. So what he suggests is to list it out to disk, which lists the text form, and then read the text form back, and then you can start out with a clean variable name table. So it's a long, long article, but it's worth a worth a read if you're still doing Atari Basic and, and concerned about space. There's an article about the Heath Company, which was purchased by Zenith, and I remember Heath from the Heath Kit and all the stuff you could build. So there's a little, there's an article about um, sort of the business and how it was purchased by Zenith and other stuff. There's an ad later on that shows a Zenith machine. And uh, also the incredibly well-named Intertube 3 terminal. Ahead of its day, it was. Then we come to the Outpost Atari. And this is the first one by Dave and Sandy Small. And a couple they've had a couple articles in the magazine previously, but this is their sort of inaugural Outpost Atari column. And they talk about displayless interrupts and stuff. And um, this is a, a more, sort of more detail into that, where they really go into the commands of the display list, talk about the character modes, and then all the flags that can go on each mode, and then the special instru- instructions, the jump, and then the, the JVB command, which is uh, jump and wait for the vertical blank. The modifier bits, you know, for each line, they can have horizontal scrolling, vertical scrolling. The load memory scan instruction, which tells Antic to look for a new place for the data for this line. And then there's a displayless interrupt flag, 
which can occur on multiple lines, but there's only one display list interrupt, so you've got to you've got to sort of keep track of where you are in your display list interrupt. But it's a nice long article, and it's well worth a read for display list interrupt stuff and antic programming in general. There's a, a couple tips like the antic can't cross a 4K boundary, so like the graphics mode eight is a 8K graphics mode, and so you've got to use a load memory scan instruction halfway through to tell it to look at another block of memory. Otherwise, it, it's not going to find all the memory for the screen. And then display list itself can't cross a 1K boundary. So there's there's definitely limitations to be aware of when you're writing, you know, sort of low-level antic code. Yeah, that's mostly it. And can you guess what the on, is on the back cover of the creative computing? Yep, it's the Ohio Scientific Computer. All right, we'll look at Softside Magazine. This is Softside for August 1981, Volume 4, Number 11. On the cover, there's a an archer, apparently in some sort of ornate dungeon, who's just shot and killed some sort of gremlin-type person. There's three programs for the Atari. There's it's there's one called Quest 1. There's another one called Battlefield, and another called Dairy Farming, which I think was a article or game from a previous issue that somebody converted to the Atari, but we'll look at that in a second. The Seiyo Ho column is by Alexis Adams, who is the wife of Scott Adams, and there's a little note that says, this month we have a guest column in place of Scott's usual scribblings. Scott will return next month. Meanwhile, we hope you'll enjoy this one from the other half of AI. And it's an article about Lance Miklas, who's also a writer here at, uh, at Softside. Just kind of a little bit of his background story, I guess. And the next article is, in fact, an article by Lance Miklas. His column's called My Side of the Page. And this one's about marketing and how to market your program. You know, choosing a publisher and uh, getting something to, to market. The first game is uh, Quest 1. So it's a graphics dungeon game, which will run in uh, 24K of RAM on the Atari. So it kind of looks like Dungeons & Dragons. You get hit points and stuff. And The thing I like about Softside is they describe all the variables and what they do, and um, a lot of times they'll t they'll show a little, they'll kind of break out by line number what the sections of the code does. For the Atari version, it, it's, it's a lot of typing. <laughs> it's almost like ten full columns There's on a three-column page. Three columns per page. So, but yeah, I didn't try this one out. There's a program called Battlefield, which is a two-player game. Looks like a board game, some sort of 40 squares on an 8x10 board. I didn't check this one out either. One thing I would suggest to the soft side publishers, if I had a time machine, which is like, include some screenshots. I don't know that I'd be too interested in typing all this stuff in if I didn't, didn't know what it was going to look like at the end. Sometimes they have, I guess, in the past, but a lot of times they don't. And maybe that's a problem with a multi-platform magazine. So which which one do you include screenshots for, and would one be better than the other? And yeah. And then the third one for the Atari is dairy farming, which is a kind of a simulation of a, a farm. And so you start with a half a million dollars, with which you must buy a farm, cows, and related equipment and supplies. And again, they kind of describe all the variables and what they do, and uh, they don't so much break out the structure of the, of the listing like they have sometimes in the past. There's a little article on computer graphics and reflective symmetry, which kind of shows some examples and it kind of ends up looking sort of like some of the M.C. Escher kind of style symmetry drawings. And if you have a TRS-80 and want to do a reverse video, they have a really detailed hardware hack that you can do. It shows a bunch of circuit diagrams and stuff, and there's a lot of soldering involved. It's not the first time I've seen one. I think they had a, a couple of issues ago, they had something about how to upgrade your Atari 
um, like 8K to 16K memory upgrades or something. I remember there was some technical stuff there. That's about it. There's the usual ads for TSC Hardside, and that's about it. Seems like most of the ads are really you know, the self-funded stuff. Oh, interestingly, there's an ad for the Sharp PC-1211 pocket computer that I was just talking about in the creative computing. And this one's not by TSC Hardside, by somebody called Atlantic Northeast Marketing in Marblehead, Mass. Back when all of Mass had 617 area code. Next up, we have the interview with James Haig. He and I are about the same age, and he did something that I always dreamt of. He wrote for and was published in Analog and Antic. He wrote five articles, and all of them were games. And then he had additional smaller submissions where he did some utilities and stuff. And then later on, he wrote Halcyon Days, which is an ebook with interviews of a bunch of classic game programmers, and it's great. I really suggest you check that out. And if that weren't enough, he still to this day maintains the giant list of classic game programmers, which is exactly what it says. It's a really, really big list of people who did classic games. So I refer to that list constantly when I'm looking at stuff for this podcast. So I had a lot of fun talking with James, and um, we recorded this on February 28th, 2015. Okay, well, um, I guess to start out, how did you, how did you get interested in computers in, at, at, the, at the start? Did you uh, see them in school, or...? It was all through um, video games, uh, playing Atari 2600 games, uh, going to the arcades. Uh, I'm really not overstating things when I say I was obsessed. I mean, I did everything <laughs> I could to, you know, if, if, if uh, there was an arcade that was near the county library uh, where I lived. So uh, if my mom was just going there to look for some books for herself, I'd go because there was a chance that we were going to end up at the arcade <laughs> nearby. Uh, so... Um, I guess my dad decided that, you know, we were, we were behind the times back in 1982, uh, and we needed to get a a home computer of some sort. Um, and then he had a friend who ran a, uh, computer store and he dropped me off there for the afternoon to play with, uh, some of the different, different models, mostly the Atari 800. Uh, but that was it. I think that, that was the that was the moment. I, I played Caverns of Mars. I played Protector. Oh, yeah. I played Pac-Man for the whole afternoon. Uh, <laughs> and that was it. We, we, we went away with one. Oh, really? <laughs> but it was, all, it was all about the games for me. I mean, as soon as uh, we had that computer home, I was reading the, the, the basic book that came with it. Uh, it's actually pretty impressive looking back that it came with an entire separate book to teach you how to program. I didn't know anything about programming, but I started going through that, that book the very uh, same day. So the whole thing was all about me learning to write games, which ended up being a lot harder than I thought. Uh, <laughs> but that was my, that was my driving motivation. So the 800 came with, did it come with basic and the, and this manual with it. It came with a big manual, which included some sample basic programs and so on, but it had an entirely separate book called, uh, Learning Atari Basic or Atari Basic, which was you know the whole thing. It had exercises. It would oh, work wow. you through uh, from not knowing anything to being able to draw lines on the screen and so on. It, it had no Atari specific, uh, you know, player missile graphics or, or oh, display okay. list or anything like that. But still, for someone who didn't know how to program at all, that was amazing. So, and did did they have computers at school when you were when you were in school? You're a couple of years. I think I'm a couple years behind you. Uh, yeah, in high school, uh, it was all Apple IIs, uh, mostly. And then there were some... It was this weird uh, Texas Instruments PC clone. 
that was used for Pascal. Huh. Uh, but uh, no, no Ataris or anything. Yeah, yeah. But I remember when I took a, um, I took a beginning programming class. I already knew how to program by that time, but I, I took it anyway because it was a prerequisite to the later stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the assignments was to make like a, a graphics demo on the Apple II, and it was fun, but it also seemed so so backwards at the time. <laughs> Just drawing black and white lines. Uh, it was it was just like having only graphics mode eight, yeah, uh, on an Atari, where your lines changed color depending on the way the wind was blowing and so on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, when you um, were sort of learning on the Atari, and uh, I read a little, you know, on your website, which is great, by the way. Um, you kind of you know, and, and as you were saying, you were really focusing on trying to write games. Um, what was the, you remember like sort of the first working sort of mini game you, you wrote? Was it? I, I wrote a series of, of four little basic games um, probably a couple of months after I first started to learn. Uh, and I got stuck because uh, I couldn't read the joystick at all. And that's because I didn't realize that the first joystick was joystick zero. Um, <laughs> I thought the way most of the population does that it was joystick one. And when I eventually figured that out, I, I think I sat down and wrote a game the same evening. It was this really terrible game where it sort of looked like Star Raiders, except that it was just a static screen and a, a, a spaceship would appear in the center of the screen and you had a split second to press the button to fire your lasers. And if you didn't, then it would fire its lasers at you. Uh, and it, it, it was really bad. I think it was called Solar Challenge. Um, but all those games that I wrote back then, we didn't have a, a disk drive yet. All we had was the 410 program recorder, which uh-huh. did not uh, let you re- re-record, or at least I had trouble re-recording over things that were already there. So uh, the way I wrote these games was I'd just sit down, and I'd have it all figured out in my head what I wanted. And maybe I sat down ahead of time and did some, uh, wrote some little test programs to make sure I knew what was, how it was going to work. But then I sat down for four hours and just wrote the whole thing. And then when I was done, I saved it out to tape, and that was it. And I, I never went back to them. If there were any bugs, that, that's just how they were. Uh, it was really bad if, if I did something to crash the system halfway through all that. Um, know, I'm, sure yeah. there were some, I'm sure there were some games I never finished. But I wrote four games that way that I thought were good enough to save uh, before I really moved on to doing more advanced stuff. And yeah, getting a disk drive in as well. <laughs> yeah, that that changed everything. <laughs> so when you're learning, um, you know, player missile graphics and display display lists and stuff, is that when you also learn six five zero two? It was somewhere around the same time. Um, I learned all the Atari graphics stuff from those compute books. Oh uh, right, yeah. Which it's actually kind of crazy to go back and look at who wrote the tutorials that I learned from. Uh, some of them were written by Doug Crockford, who's now famous in the JavaScript world. Sure, yeah. Uh, Orson Scott Card wrote something that I read. At the time, I had no idea who these people were. Uh, and some, they, some of them weren't even well-known yet. But uh, Stephen Levy, who wrote Hackers, had written some tutorials. <laughs> um, that is fun. But I got a couple of those books and, and just went through and was, uh, you know, I copied the demo programs and, and learned how to do display lists and all that uh, and somewhere in there, I borrowed the Atari Assembler book uh, by Kurt and Don Inman from the library, which is where I started learning uh, 6502. And were you also were you getting all the magazines at the time as well? Eventually, I subscribed to 
analog, antic, and compute. Um, I think it was right around when we got a disk drive. So I was I was uh, typing in stuff from analog at that point. Yeah, all the assembly language games and stuff. And... Yeah, those are great. I, I remember typing in stuff like I think Livewire was the first one. I typed yeah. it took me eight hours or something of of, of typing, which was painful. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you type in all the hex stuff or did you type in the assembler source? Uh, I typed in the hex. It, it had the uh, the checker to make sure you didn't make any mistakes, which was actually really good. Yeah, yeah, that was. But yeah, Livewire I think was the first one I typed in as well. Here it had all the source, you know, you kind of learn from it and stuff. And yeah, I learned a lot from from those games. Some of those, like Livewire, was pretty advanced to to go through, but I learned a lot from uh, Planetary Defense, Firebug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a bunch of other ones. Those assembly listings were amazing. Yeah, that was a great resource. It was like it was really instructive how they how these. You know, Tom Hudson and all these guys really worked their code. Did you st- were you still playing arcade games at the time? You know, go- going to arcades after you got your 800. Yeah, I was still totally obsessed. Um, I think I kind of got tired of the 2600 at that point because the mm-hmm. computer games are so much better. But there were still like 1982, 1983. Uh, there was just so many arcade games, so many amazing games all coming out at the same time. Yeah, what were some of your favorites? Uh I think I played a lot of Robotron. Um, oh, I really tough. loved Robotron. Uh, Gyrus. I was a big fan of Gyrus. Um, yeah, I played cool. all the usual stuff. I mean, that was the best part about going to the arcade was you could you could just pick and choose. It, you didn't like when you bought a, a game and played it at home. You'd get sick of it after a while. Yeah. Uh, but when you went to the arcade, you could just I'll play Donkey Kong for a bit. Now I'll play Donkey Kong Junior. Now I'll play some strange random game that I've never heard of, and then you play that for a while. Then oh, I, I like Robotron. I'm going to go back to Robotron. And that was the best part was just having that huge variety. Yeah, and then and you know some about just the you know it's kind of a special occasion you get to go there. It feels like and uh, so when you um, what what gave you the, kind of the idea to start thinking about, well, maybe I can get something published by one of the magazines. It was from reading the magazines uh, and just seeing the stuff that was in there. Um, it, it was, it was mind-blowing to me that, that somebody wrote this, and, and there it was. Uh, and as the, the games I started, you know, the games I worked on got a little bit better, uh, it seemed like a reasonable goal. Like, I, I can do this. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing... There's nothing that's preventing me from from doing this. I can I can I can get this done. Um, I think I was I was really motivated by the analog stuff because it was all in assembly language and it was arcade quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was a that was a big goal because I was just starting to get into all the Atari hardware. I was just learning how to do sixty five zero two assembly language. And uh, I think the first game I wrote was just a total failure. It didn't work. Oh. Uh, I had the uh, Atari assembler editor cartridge mm-hmm. and it took. I probably only had a couple hundred lines of assembly language, and it took seven minutes to assemble that. Oh, really? Uh, it, it was really, really bad. Wow. Um, there was a, there's a note in the manual for that that says, we think this assembler was designed for small projects, not big projects. If you want to do big <laughs> projects, you should get something else. Really? Um, it was in the manual? <laughs> yeah. They, they, well, they were pushing the Atari macro assembler. Uh, but oh. I, I got the... Um, the, the Mac 65 assembler from OSS because that's what everybody was using in the yeah. magazines. I figured, well, if that's what Tom Hudson uses, that's what I want. So it's <laughs> good enough uh, for me. Yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah. that made a big difference because that was, that was essentially having the professional quality tool. Um, so I was no longer limited by the, the time it took to, to assemble things. I was just limited by the time it took me to, to figure out what to write. 
Yeah. So for that for that first attempt when you first started writing stuff, um, did you have a, a a goal in mind or like or like a, a design that you were? I, I had a design, but it was a, it was a pretty bad design. It was uh, I think something like this eventually did get published in in Analog uh, or one of the other magazines. It was just a, a bunch of platforms on the screen, maybe maybe six platforms that stretched the width of the screen, and then there were little ladders that connected them. If you've ever seen uh, Fast Eddie on the 2600, it's a lot like that. Uh, and then there were these creatures that moved back and forth, and you were just supposed to do something, which I <laughs> don't think I ever figured out, uh, by moving up and down the ladders and avoiding the creatures. Uh, but it was all tech. I mean, the the... the there was a creature per platform, and that was done with display list interrupts to split the split some player into pieces. Um, and there was an old custom display list for everything and all that. So I, it was a good test bed for all that fancy Atari stuff, but yeah. uh, it, it really wasn't much of a game. And then I think the instant I got uh, Max 65, I just dropped that project completely and started on something new. Oh, okay. And that, that project turned out to be um, the Electroids, uh, okay, which was yeah. the first thing I sold to Analog. It took me about four months to write, which is silly. I mean, you look at it, it's the 3K game or something, and it took four months to write, which I, I obviously I was a lot slower in those days, or using a line editor was very slow or something. But um, that was the first project I did that was a, a, a saleable game. And it was, uh, you know, I used Mac 65 for the whole thing. And the design was just very loose. All I wanted to have initially was, you know, there were a lot of games with, with platforms and characters that jumped. Yeah. And so I just had the idea of, well, what if the jump kept going until you release the button? And that's all it was. And so I got that working pretty fast. And then I just sort of made up a game around it. And <laughs> it's actually not bad considering that I made the whole thing up without any kind of master plan. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've played all the games, yeah. So I think it's just like seven or eight games, I think, that you've published. Something like that. Yeah, like you said, it was the first one you sold, but not the first one that showed up in the magazines. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what happened there. I mean, the once once something got accepted, you were just at the mercy of their publishing schedule. They'd figure out what game or what program should get published when. Um, and I, as a contributor, I had no idea. So... It ended up showing up after Bonk, which was the second thing I wrote and sold to Analog. And I think there was even a game I wrote for Antic in there, too. And uh, the Electroids showed up later. But I don't know why. I have no (laughs) idea why they decided to put Bonk ahead of Electroids. Electroids is actually a better game than Bonk. Um, And they even got that that great artist they used to do uh, uh, art for some of the games or for the articles, Gary Lippincott. Oh, uh uh-huh. Uh, and he did a piece for uh, the Electroids, which was awesome because his his art was really good. And I was really glad to see that they had taken the time to get a you know nice piece of custom art for the article. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And um, and do you do you write all the text for the article as well? I did. Uh, I haven't looked at it in a long time. I don't know how it's <laughs> held up, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was um, when you submitted something, you you gave them the the source code. And you wrote the article as well. Um, At at the time, I didn't have a printer, so I never submitted uh, printed copies. Um, And I thought, well, that's no big deal. There's there's somebody there who can just type in what I have, not really realizing what small operations these these magazines were. 
you know, I thought it was some big conglomerate, you know, with there's hundreds of people. Um, but it, in reality, it was like eight guys in a, in a room. Um, did you ever like visit him or anything or, uh, nope, never did. Um, I saw when I was in San Francisco, I guess, 10 years ago for the game developers conference, I actually looked up where the antic offices were because my hotel was right near there. Oh yeah. Uh, so that was just interesting to see. It's just sort of a nondescript office space. Yeah. And then analog was run out of uh, a house in Worcester mass. It's really, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Cause it's just, these magazines were on the, uh, you know, were on the magazine rack of all these bookstores all yeah. over the country, all over the world. And I thought, you know, they've got like an eight story building. With all these people. <laughs> no, it's not, not really. In fact, with one of the later articles, um, I still didn't have a printer, and so I, I still didn't submit a printed copy. And Clayton Walnum actually called me at home and said, do you have a printed copy, or do you have a, uh, no, I didn't have a copy, I, I submitted a printed copy, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have a, a, a disc copy, because I actually wrote all the articles on an Apple II. No. Because <laughs> my dad had an Apple II, and he had a printer, and he had Apple Works for the word processor, and so I'd use that to write the articles and print them out and send them. But I didn't send the article on disk, so somebody had to retype it. Oh, so right. Clayton Walnut called me up and said, I really don't want to retype this. Do you have, <laughs> do you have a, a disk version? And I said, well, no, sorry, I, I, I don't. And so immediately after that, I went out and bought a, a printer and a printer interface. And a, I think it was the first excellent word processor for the Atari. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> but I only used it for one game. I only wrote one more game after that. So, oh, really? <laughs> so for Electroids, I guess the first thing you submitted... Did you, did you have any like contact with them ahead of time? Say, oh, I'd like to submit this, or did you just like write everything up, package it, and send it? Yeah, it was just blind. There was a there was a box or a, you know a page in every magazine saying contributors wanted. You know, send us your your stuff, send us your articles, reviews, games, especially assembly language games. So I did, <laughs> uh, and they rejected it the first time I sent it, um, and I got a note back explaining why, and it was. There were just some suggestions. I don't even know who the suggestions were from, but there was little things. Like in the original version I submitted, the little green guy didn't move up and down. He just was static. And they had the suggestion of, you should animate him, add some more animation. Oh, right. And I think there were one or two bugs, um, but I don't remember what they were. But the bugs that they had found, like playtesting it? That they found. Wow. So. But the, the coolest part was uh, somebody had printed out the source code on one of those old green fanfold tractor feed printers. Oh, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> and marked it up with uh, opportunities for optimization. They went through the whole thing, and there's uh, dozens of places where they showed how I could optimize the code. And this was amazing, because I'd never thought about optimizing before. You know, everybody thinks these Atari computers are so, uh, you know, they're so slow, you need to really worry about optimizing for speed, which I never did. I, I didn't really know what I would have done to make things faster. But, and this was mostly about uh, space because people had to type all these hex codes in. So every byte that could be removed from the program was oh. two less hex codes to type. Right. So somebody went through and marked up things like if you have a subroutine call followed by a return, you can replace that with a jump. And that uses uh, two less bytes or one less byte, two less hex codes. Yeah. And they went through the whole thing like that. Uh, and that was the first exposure I had to optimizing code. Uh, from of any sort and i still have it because i just think it's really cool that somebody i don't know who it was I, it was somebody in their their tech department uh it could have been tom hudson i don't know it could have been 
any of the, the other people who were there that were technical editors, but that was really cool. So I, I implemented that, which probably saved people typing, you know, another hundred characters or so. And I added a little uh, animation to make the guy move up and down. I added the uh, electric effect on the title screen. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I fixed a couple bugs, but there's still a lot of bugs in that game. Um, there's like one little place on a platform where you fall through it instead of standing on it. Oh, really? Huh. Uh, and there's some other stuff if you, if you play it for a while. But uh, they accepted it on the, on the second try, which was really cool. Um, and that ended up being my first uh, paid uh, game job, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and then and I guess, was that also like kind of the, the first time you got like a code review of any of your code? You know, that, uh, yeah, it was, uh, that, that was totally unexpected. Yeah. But, and that was like the only time. See, that the, the experience I had with the Electroids was, was very different than anything I had later on because I never had another game rejected. They always went through in the first time. And I never had anybody give me comments on the code. Uh, it was just very, um, I had some stuff rejected that, w- that weren't games. I had some utilities that I wrote uh, that they were kind of uh, not very good. So I can understand why they, why they didn't want them. <laughs> but uh, it was actually really cool though, just to, 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 to have that, that contact the, the first time through. Cause later on it was just, I'd, I'd package something up, I'd send it, I'd get back a contract. Uh, and except for that one time that I got called up about where's the uh, electronic version of the, <laughs> the article. I never had any other direct contact. Now, what were these, what were the contracts like that they have you sign? Uh, it was a, a one pager and you had two options. You could either get $60 a page, which that's not really incentive to keep things short. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you could get $60 a page and that would give the rights to analog or you could get $50 a page and keep the rights yourself. Hmm. And I don't remember what I did, honestly. Uh, with the uh, assembly language games, well, the other thing was there was also a cap of uh, $360. So af- after six pages, it didn't matter if you went with the $60 a page option. Oh, yeah. But with the assembly language games, um, there was the article, then the basic listing, you know, with all the hex codes to type. Mm-hmm. And then there was the assembly language listing. And that was always at least six pages. So oh, you, you actually did better with the assembly language games. Oh, yeah, so they count all, all those the yep. source listings as the page count. Oh, interesting. But if you look back, I spent four months writing that game, and I got $360. <laughs> so <laughs> not, yeah, the, not, not the greatest. The hourly rate's not the highest. Yeah, I did. I had a uh, just a shift in mindset, I think, at that point, where I did two, um, two assembly language games for analog. There was Electroids and Bonk. Mm-hmm. And looking back, it had just taken so long i think it was four months each for whatever reason and i just had a shift in thinking i don't really want to spend another four months writing something that i get 360 dollars for i need to figure out a way to write faster games or you know games faster games uh in a shorter period of time yeah. so i ended up shifting uh I, I wrote some other stuff for for analog some utilities and so on but that's when i started writing more stuff for antic because i knew i could write them faster yeah, and it seemed like Antic was more like kind of the you know basic style games, and Analog was still focusing on the machine language stuff. It was it was a mix in Analog. They did they usually had one basic game and one one uh, one assembly language per per. But uh, I don't know. It was just it was too complicated uh, for me to write these these games that looked so silly. They looked so trivial, but they uh, they took a long time. So I was trying to figure out how to write stuff quicker and Analog. 
the or the, the the analog style stuff was was pretty tough, and the the antic stuff was still was seemed more approachable to me. I did write some other stuff for analog, but I never submitted it because it was going way beyond the four month uh, window. Oh yeah, and then I accidentally deleted that. So uh, oh, oh well. no, <laughs> oh man, yeah. Do you have? Do you still have some of your uh, your source, and do you still have your Atari stuff? No, I don't have the Atari anymore. Um, I had a big, I had a big period of collecting stuff in the nineties. Um, the Atari is still at my my mom's house. Uh, it's still there, um, in the same place. I used to use it. <laughs> uh, it. It may even be the same TV. I don't know. Um, but I don't have any of the actual hardware anymore. In the nineties, I acquired a whole bunch of stuff, and then I, I sold it all off on the internet. Mm-hmm. And now I have just the issues of the magazines that I wrote stuff for and a few odds and ends like the electroid source code um, and some other stuff like that. I still look at this stuff in emulators, which is uh, nice. It's very convenient. Yeah. Yeah, of course I, I have, I sell my old hardware, but it doesn't work very well. So I generally use emulators for everything. So yeah, when I, when I tried out all your games, I was on, on an emulator and yeah, I don't really have any problems running stuff on the emulators. There was a, a lot of issues with the actual hardware. I mean, the Atari hardware was great, but I ran it on a uh, on a TV, and the TV always had uh, interference. You know, looks like waves going across the uh, screen. Yeah. And so the very first thing I did whenever I was editing source code was to change the background color uh, in Basic. Um, I still remember this. It was set color two comma zero comma zero, which made the background black. I think that's right. <laughs> Uh, and that way, the waves weren't as as obvious. Oh, rather than the default blue, yeah. Right. So uh, for the for the stuff you submitted for Antic, um, yeah, as it looks like I think I've kind of like five games for Antic you did. Um, how was that? How was that different? How was that? Um, was the submission process kind of the same? You just know, like a, a blind submission, and they'd send you yep, back a contract. It was the same. Uh, I don't remember the differences in contract. It, it was about the same amount of money that that analog gave, but I don't I don't really remember the details. Mm-hmm. But it was just submit something, get back a contract in the mail. Um, that was it. It was it was very very easy. Yeah. Of course, you had no idea again what they were going to do with something like when they accepted it. Um, when was it going to show up? Was it going to be a game of the month? Was it going to be a disc bonus? There was just no way to know. It looked like most of yours were games of the month that I could tell. Yeah, which was cool. Yeah, but I, I never. I mean, I didn't. They never said, "Hey, we're going to use this as a game of the month." They just, they just did. They just kind of surprised you. How long did it take on, in, on average? You think from when you submitted it to when it showed up? Was there? A- I think the, the shortest one I ever saw was about six months, maybe a little less, five or six months, because oh, wow. they usually had like a two month lead time on getting the issues to print and and so on. Yeah. But some of them were kind of long. Like with analog, I think the electroids took a year, over a year, a year and a half, something like that. Wow. So let's see. Electroids, it came out in the, was it the June 86 issue? So you kind of, so you'd written out like early 85, I guess, sometime? It was, well, it was in 86. It was in 84. 84. I started writing it in April 84. Wow. And I submitted it in summer of 84. So is that right? Do I have my dates right here? It look, yeah, it looks like. June 86 for Electroids, and then, um, what is it, October 85 for Bonk. Yeah, I think that's right. So it took a year and a half for Electroids to show up. Holy cow, wow. But uh, yeah, you knew it was accepted, it just like, that must have been kind of, so not knowing what issue would show up, would you, would you like, just, 
you know, immediately go to the magazine and say, is it there? Is it there? And Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's when I got issues of those magazines, I'd immediately just sit down and go right through them. I'd flip through to see if anything I had was in there. And then if it wasn't, I'd still read it cover to cover after that. Uh, of course, they didn't pay until publication. So it was nice to, uh, to see it get published. Because so, then they, they had the page count that they could figure out how much they owed you. Oh, right. But so the checks always came after the magazine came out? Yep. And I loved getting those magazines. That was, I remember all the names of all the people that wrote the articles and the, the listings and so on. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a, a cool, like a club almost. You know, I'd, I'd say, well, this <laughs> game was written by J.D. Caston. I remember other J.D. Caston stuff. And I'd read the bios. Um, and I, I went in analog. There was lots of, lots of utilities from uh, Matthew J.W. Ratcliffe. You know, that was an oh, easy name to remember. Remember because, that name? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I, that, was, that was really fun, just knowing who – it's just like, you know, your favorite authors that write books or who directs movies or, or whatever. For me, this was the same thing. It was I'd, I'd get these magazines and I'd know who, who wrote stuff. And then uh, one of the analog game of the month I wrote, they, they made up little bios. You know, I didn't write those. They, they made up the bios. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you. <laughs> and it, it said something like, uh, that I was a Texan from out, or no, I was a, <laughs> it was something, something about being, uh, from Texas, but that I'd made many uh, memorable appearances in Antic. And that one, that was like, that was very cool to me. That was this feeling that I'd, I'd succeeded in becoming one of the, uh, one of their memorable contributors. That must've been really cool to, to so you're a part of this club now. I mean, you're, yeah, I mean, that, that was, it, and it was all just from, you know, it, I, it took work because every every uh, Tom Hudson, well, Tom Hudson was amazingly fast. After reading about how quickly he wrote some of those games, I I don't even want to use him as an example because he's superhuman. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but, he wrote something like Livewire in two weeks or something like that, which makes me feel silly for spending four months on on Electroids. But uh, but all those articles, you know, you'd, you'd see a game, um, you know, no matter what the game was, and unless it was a direct clone of, of an arcade game from the time, you know, the, the idea came from somebody's head and they had to sit down and figure out how to make it work. And they had to draw the graphics and they had to come up with the sound effects and they had to write the article. And so there was a lot of work involved in each of those. And so it was really cool to get these windows into the heads of, of people who decided that they were going to take their free time and make things for other people. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. That, that, well, you know, and game design, Back then, obviously, is much different than it is nowadays. Did you, um, when you were writing your games, did you have any input from anybody else, or were you just was this pretty much all stuff from your own, your own ideas, or did you did you ask people for, you know, I don't know, playtesting help, or um, what was your kind of your development procedure? Mostly, it was the very first people that ever played the game were the people that bought the magazine, <laughs> which is is crazy. I, I, that that's a terrible way to do things, but. Uh, <laughs> I think I may have had my brothers play some games. I know that I had some people play the Electroids before I sent that, but that might have been one of the few. Um, I think uh, I did a, a, a game called Current Events for Analog or for Antic later, and that's a two-player simultaneous game. So I'm pretty sure I had somebody else play with me to make sure that it worked. Yeah, but that's, that's the only one I couldn't really play. Mostly, it was all just me spending a lot of time trying to come up with ideas in my head implementing something and then letting it go right after that. I wasn't, uh, 
I didn't spend a lot of time iterating. I mean, partly because with the, the what you were getting paid, really, or you know how much right. how how little I got from these, it wasn't worth doing version two point and so on. It was just get it out the door. I you know for for electrodes, you kind of had the you, you you know you came up with the the play mechanic, you know the jumping, uh, the continual jumping while you're holding the button down. Was uh was it more like you, f- you had a game mechanic that you found, or did you have like a hardware thing that you were trying to ma- write a game around? Well, the hardware was always there because there were certain things you just couldn't do um, because the, you had to build it around display list and display list mm-hmm. interrupts and, and player missile graphics and all that. So there were certain kinds of games that were very difficult. Uh, something like Robotron was a terrible match for the Atari, but somebody went ahead and did it anyway. Yeah. So, um, mostly it was based around a game mechanic that I knew I could make work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was a little too fixated on the limitations of the Atari and trying to make stuff work. So I made a lot of games where you look at it and you can see, oh, there's the three players and that's the missile <laughs> and here's where the interrupt occurs. And it's not very, um, you know, I, I'd really, I didn't really challenge myself that much in that way. But the game designs were all based around just trying to think of something that would be, was simple enough that I could make and would still be fun, mm-hmm. uh, which was hard because there's a lot of, a lot of games out there that you, you, people took a huge amount of time to get right, but I couldn't really do that because these, these had to be type-in games, and like I didn't want to spend a year on one game. Right? Yeah. Just it's, it's just unfortunately, you know, they didn't pay it enough. They didn't pay enough to make it really worth your time to make a. F- yeah, sometimes it was it was just a, a flash, like the the uh, the Uncle Henry's nuclear waste dump design that just hit me one day, like just instantly, <laughs> um, and I wrote the game in five days and submitted it. Yeah, that, that, that's actually my favorite of all your games that I, I played. It's kind of cool because it's sort of a proto Tetris. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah. I think Tetris was out at the time, but I didn't know about it. It wasn't really available in the U.S. yet, or something. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly hadn't heard of it. So when I saw Tetris and I went back and looked at Uncle Henry's, it's kind of cool because there's similarities. You know, you move back and forth, you drop stuff in a pit. You have to think about where to drop it. Yeah. But that's where it stops. Tetris did a much better job than I did. Um. Like they, I had this awkward, uh, there's a timer for how long you can hold on to a piece before it falls. And the Tetris solution was much more elegant. It was the piece falls and you steer it, but still it was really cool to come up with a design that, that was just a different design. It was not based on anything I'd seen before. And idea to submission was five days, which that was cool. That I I felt good about that. I felt like (laughs) I actually, I, I, I got about the right, um, the right check for, uh, for that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that is a fun game. Um I definitely found myself playing that one the most and uh you know, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of thinking about okay, which way is it going to fall and then you you're, you're looking you're looking down at the bottom of the screen where all these things are piling up and even though that you have like what uh, 3 seconds or something it still it becomes a little frantic when it starts when it starts filling up, you know. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that one. I tried really hard to not just copy arcade games. Um, there were a lot of arcade games, or a lot of a lot of type in games at the time that you could tell. Oh, this is Cubert. Oh, this is mm-hmm. you know, yeah. whatever. And I was trying really hard not to do that. Uh, I don't know if it was worth it, but that was like one of my big a big focus was to make sure that I wasn't just copying something that was already there. Some games obviously had inspirations, like uh, Rock Slide certainly has a bit of Pengo to it. Yeah, but uh, I, at least looking back, feel pretty good that I wasn't just copying stuff that was already there. 
Yeah, and yeah, originality is tough for sure. It's and so I'm looking at your list of antic games. So I think on your website you've got sort of a, a little bit of some background on some of the games, and you started really using you know like as you said to like make it more efficient using more basic and then machine language sort of in the spots that needed to be sped up. Yeah, I think that that started with was Rockslide your first. Rockslide had some of it, but. In Rockslide, I think it was just the the way the blocks flashed, and then Current Events and E Racer were both uh, like the kernel of the game was all assembly language. I, I, I think I wrote, I figured out what parts of the game were going to be tricky, like vertical movement of sprites is tricky on the Atari, so that had to be an assembly language, um, and so on. And I figured out, you know, what was the, how could I write a two hundred and fifty six byte core of the game. <laughs> That would that would go into something like page six, and then I'd I'd write down you know all the the hooks to it which which are the uh, which are the memory locations that I can put you know data in and get data out of, yeah. and then the rest of the game was just sort of scripted with basic, uh, and with with both current events and eraser it was like half the game was assembly language really. Um, like in Eraser, there's those little flames that come out of your your, your yeah, pocket. Those, those that, that was cool. all that was all animated in the in the assembly language stuff. Um, I'm pretty sure that in in uh, current events, the the timer was actually being printed and handled and printed from assembly language. You know, anything that was just awkward and basic or too slow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a it was actually a kind of a difficult approach because you only have so much memory to stick this assembly code into. Uh, but it was still a lot easier than writing straight assembly games. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and you know, as as you know, sort of languages developed and stuff, it's definitely much easier to write in high level high level language, much more efficient. You know, use of programmer time. Well, it would be uh, more. There'd be more focus. Like all I have to do is write a little routine that moves the moves the ship, and uh, and makes the flames come out. So I'd have one address somewhere in page six or page zero or somewhere where you would put in the, uh, the Y coordinate that you wanted it to appear at. Mm-hmm. And then the next vertical blank, the um, assembly routine would look at that and say, okay, I'm going to draw the ship, erase the ship from the old location, draw the ship at this new location, add some animated flames. And then, so all the basic code did was this one poke. I want to move the ship, poke. <laughs> and it automatically handled the flames and everything, mm-hmm. uh, which was really nice because it, me- it meant when I was writing the ship movement code, I was just very focused on one small problem. And then in basic, it just becomes one, one poke. So it's, it was, it was actually a very pleasant way to work overall. <laughs> yeah. So kind of like the logic and basic and the, the low level stuff in assembly language. And... Yeah. Basic got slow really fast. I mean, everybody, everybody knows basic is slow, but it was surprising how quickly um, basic could get slow. You know, you could just do some stuff that was relatively simple, like, you know, looping three times over something, and that would make the game unplayable. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so it was, uh, it, was, it was nice to be able to say, every time something looked like it was a problem, try to move it over to the assembly side and see if that works. Did you ever think about other, like, action or other languages, fourth, some, you know, other sort of language other than basic? At the time, no, um, just because it seemed like, that's what the magazines wanted. Um, oh, right, yeah. Basic. Uh, there was basic, and then there was assembly language, and then um, I remember reading the fourth column in analog, but I never saw anything significant written in fourth because you had to own fourth in order to use it. That's and true, then, right, yeah. 
ant, uh, ant action picked up a little bit. Uh, I, there were quite a few articles about action, but uh, not nearly as many as the others. And a lot of times the action games were the disc bonuses from Antic. Because oh, once okay. again, you, 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 had to, you had to have it. So they, you know, they'd compile up a, a standalone version that didn't need the cartridge and then put it on the disc. Uh, but that would be way too long for you to type in or, or anything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, not, yeah. I guess yeah. Targeting the magazines, I guess you really have to write what the magazines are going to support. So, yep. Yeah. And it made it simple because that's what you had. I mean, you you just used what was available. The system mm-hmm. is a sixty five hundred two, and you have basic the end. You, know, yeah. you don't have to think. Now it's a, it can get harder. You know, I want to write a game for Windows, and then you have all these options. Uh, and it was sort of nice to just have very few and not worry about it. Yeah. So what's what do you think? What's your what's your favorite of your games? Do you think? Do you have one? Um, I think the Electroids has held up the best in terms of single player. Um, it's just simple. I actually wrote uh, I wrote a version for the Mac in the '90s, and I also wrote an iPhone version as a test. And the iPhone version took me two days. <laughs> um, there was no art; it was just blocks, and it used the tilt controls instead of uh, buttons to go left and right. But it's still fun. It, it actually still holds up. Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty decent game. And then current events is decent as a two player game. Um, both current events and Rock Slide, because they were two player, uh, ended up being a lot of fun because it was they were unpredictable in the way that uh, good two player games are. You know, like if you ever played Bomberman with with multiple people, sometimes you you're surprised, and the person that's never played Bomberman before beats you, <laughs> and that's how current events worked out. Um, I think, yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's about it. So, and then when you, when you decided to move, uh, past the Ataris, I heard you got into PCs. Is that, uh, when, like when you went to college and stuff? Well, when I went to college, I, I had a PC because, uh, I was majoring in computer science and that let me do, uh, assignments from my dorm room without having to go to the computer labs. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't write any games. Um, it was just a word processing slash Turbo Pascal machine. Um, and then when I went home in the summer, that's when I'd I'd usually write one Atari game uh, in the summer. Um, you know, when I wasn't working and when I had the time. Because uh, if you look at my later games, there's definitely a pattern. There's like um, like going backwards. Eraser was in written in the summer of of eighty eight and. Um, Current Events was written in the summer of 87, and Rockside was written in the summer of 86. That, <laughs> you can see where that's going. So it was, I'd, I'd come home, and I'd, I'd work on an Atari game just for fun, and then I'd go back and be using my PC. Uh, oh, yeah. At the time, it was very difficult to do. Like, at least I thought it was hard to write games on the PC because you had to deal with all the graphics adapters. You know, the, oh, sure, yeah. I, I had a monochrome PC, but some people had CGA, and then eventually people got EGA and VGA, and they were all different. And uh, the, you yeah. had the little buzzing speaker for sound. <laughs> and compared to how it was to write stuff on the Atari, I mean, that was really hard on the yeah. PC. So I, I didn't. Uh, I had a monochrome video card, so I didn't really know what I was going to write with that. So I, I didn't. I never really got into to writing PC games. Yeah, and there were you know there wasn't any there weren't cross platform you know like there wasn't an SDL library or something like that for a long time and so yeah right it's a whole different environment for sure and then well and then even supporting different processor speeds you'd have to worry about all that yeah it's it's a much different problem yeah it was complicated 
and um, so like so between well uh, let's see so Eraser was the last Atari game that you wrote and then how'd you get how'd you get back into developing games I I mean I graduated with a the degree in computer science and I got some boring job writing telecommunication software um, I would have stuck with that if I had foreseen the rise of cell phones but I didn't <laughs> But it was actually kind of interesting, and it was you know my first experience working on large systems with a lot mm-hmm. of people. But eventually, I just decided that it was all too corporate, and it's not really what I wanted to do. Um, and I was in Dallas at the time, and so I started just casting about across the whole country for where could I go, you know what could I what kind of job could I get, and um, I picked up a Seattle newspaper. This was locally in Dallas. I picked up a Seattle paper. Um, and this was before you know you could get on the web and, and look around and right. see what was available. And there was an uh, an ad in the classifieds that said sixty five oh two hacker wanted, <laughs> uh, and it's something about writing games. And it was for some company called Manly and Associates, um, which sounded like a law firm. Yeah. And so <laughs> I I sent off um, you know a resume to them, and I got I sent off a copy of the Bonk article and listing. Oh, uh-huh. uh, and a and a resume, and they called me up, and so I ended up flying up to Seattle, and uh, I worked with worked there for three years writing. I started out writing Super Nintendo games, and which was a, a direct you know sixty five zero two connection because it was right, a yeah. sixty five eight one eight one six, mm-hmm. and then um, ended up being a bunch of other stuff after that, some PC stuff, some Mac stuff, um, but the three three D O. I went to a Virtual Boy uh, developer conference. Um, but uh, Manly & Associates was one of those... Uh, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that there were these companies that were kind of behind the scenes. Like, even on the uh, Atari, everybody knows about Blue Max. Blue Max was a great game from, mm-hmm. from Synapse, but it was actually ported to the Atari by Sculptured Software in, uh, I think it's Salt Lake City. So there were these sort of shadow companies that didn't get any credit that you didn't really know about. Oh right, uh, yeah. and I didn't. I didn't know anything about that at the time. But but uh, Manly and Associates uh, was one of those. Like they, most of the stuff they made, they didn't put their name on. Um, they would have game companies come to them and say, "We want you to make this idea or port this." Um, and so they never got any credit, and they were never well known. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, at the time, projects were still small enough that there were you know only a handful of people on each one. Yeah, I was going to ask about like team size and that kind of stuff. So it was yeah, it was you know every every team was below ten easy, um, one or two programmers, occasionally three. It was all it was oh, all pretty yeah. small. And so yeah, but then you had your dedicated artists and people working on the music and project. right. There was one one guy doing music for the entire studio. And, oh really? <laughs> uh, and sound it was all one guy, and then there was there were artists of course, but. Uh, Maybe on a project you'd have one 2D artist, one animator, or you'd have a couple 2D artists, one animator, one character artist. That's it. That's that's your art team. And then and then for so Super Nintendo, so that was the cartridge based stuff. So there's like, would you send off like a I don't know some sort of master, and then they mass produce cartridges elsewhere? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, you'd just come up with a final, you know, an EEPROM image of this is the game, mm-hmm. which it could just be a you know a file. And then uh, if it got through Nintendo's approval process, then, yeah, it would go to, go to manufacturing at great cost. Those cartridges were expensive. Um, 
Yeah, I guess setting up all the ROM masks and all that stuff is... Well, they had, like, each each ca- cartridge, not only did it have ROMs, but you could have optional stuff like battery backup, or uh, you could add DSPs in there to do uh, fast calculations for certain kinds of games. And some of those cartridges cost $20, $25. Um, oh, to I make? Bat- really? Wow. To make, to manufacture. Wow. So the, your, your $60 game... In a high-end cartridge where there was uh, battery backup and all that stuff, it's $25 of that was the hardware of the actual cartridge. Wow. And, you know, everybody's got to take their cut on top of that. So that's, yeah, definitely why they're so expensive. Unlike, you know, producing a CD or something, which is super cheap. Yeah. And there was was a lot of um, pressure to keep it small because if you went to a larger ROM size, then that added $2 to the cost of goods. Yeah. Wow. And then, yeah, and so you went on to other companies after that. When did you kind of find, uh, think about coming back to the 8-bits, you know, and kind of reminiscing? Because, you know, writing Halcyon Days, which is a, a great collection of articles that you did, I mean, that's, um, I love going back and reading all that stuff about. Oh, the, thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, really awesome. How did, did you sort of get the, get a bug to go back and explore some of the old 8-bit stuff again, or? Yeah, in the, the 90s, I mean, I, I, now that I was working and, and, and actually had some income, um, I went back and bought a lot of the games that I wish I could have bought. Because, like, for, uh, even on the, the 2600, you know, it, it, I'd request a game for my birthday or I'd save up. And it, it's kind of crazy to think of you're saving for months and all you get is Chopper Commander. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a good game, but, you know, that's not, not three months good. And then, <laughs> so. Back in the early 90s on Usenet, I, I just started like buying stuff. Like, hey, do you have old 2600 games you don't want? And this was before the, the collectors really hit. So I'd uh-huh. have people sending me boxes of, of these 2600 games. And I bought, a, I bought several Atari 8-bit computers. I bought, I can't remember what the model number is, but there was that one Commodore monitor that everybody wanted. Um, oh, uh-huh. uh, and I had one of those. Um, I had a whole pile of stuff. And then at some point, somebody else gave me their 800 that they didn't want. Uh, and this is when it started looking like I had gone overboard and had, had too much stuff. But it was cool to go back and play all the games I remember hearing about that I didn't, didn't get to own. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's even just with Activision games, maybe Activision had 30 games and I only ever played 10 of them. So I was going back and playing everything, playing all the stuff that I, I, I remembered. And... I'd always uh, remembered the names of people who, who wrote games. So whenever I'd read an, an interview uh, with someone who wrote a game, it would be like, wow, that, that's amazing. This guy, you know, I, I can't believe that he, he came up with this idea and wrote this game, and this is how he makes his living. Yeah. And I'd remember, well, that was, okay, that's Bill Budge, or that's Mark Turmel, or, or whoever. And so when I went through a lot of these old magazines I had, and when I went through all these new systems and all these old, these twenty six hundred cartridges that I was buying and 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 eight bit games and so on, I was remembering all the names. Like it says here in the manual that this was written by this guy, and I remember the name. And then at some point, I realized I should just write all this down because I have all these names in my head. <laughs> you know, I, I still remember that. You know, I, I remember who wrote Harvey Wallbanger for Analog. I remember that. that I remember that. Uh, Kyle Peacock wrote Bopotron and stuff like that, um, which is some people just call this useless trivia, but in, and they're right. Uh, <laughs> I I went down and just started writing it all down on paper and um, well, in a computer file, 
Uh, and I just kept doing that. And then every time I'd run into more sources of information, like when I was at Manly and Associates, they had a big old box of um, old computer gaming worlds from the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so I just went through there and wrote down all the names I could find of the people that, that wrote all the different games. And then at some point, um, it was a pretty big list. And uh, in fact, you might even say it's a giant, a giant list. <laughs> a giant list. And <laughs> so I started, I started posting it to Usenet at some point. Um, there, there was a precursor. There was a guy called Shane Schaffer who had something called – his list was called Designers and Their Games. And it was sort of the same territory that I was in. Um, and he posted that for a little bit. And then he said, uh, I'm tired of this. Does somebody else want to maintain it? And I said, sure, I'll take care of it and I'll merge it with stuff that I have. And so then I turned it into the giant list of classic game programmers, um, which that was back in 92 or so. And it's still going after 23 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny to look back now. Cause, um, at the time, I couldn't just go look at any of these various game database sites. You know, there's Atari Mania now, which is filled with thousands and thousands of games. And there's, yeah. there's those also big do-it-all, you know, databases of, of, of games. Um, but the stuff I had was just all from my head. So, and getting it out on the, on the internet was good because a lot of the people on there would send me mail, uh, which was very cool. So oh, I'd, yeah. I'd, all these people who I remember would send mail and say, hey, you know, there's some stuff I wrote that you should find out about. And, <laughs> and then other people who just read the list said, well, I have a date I can give you for when that game was written. And I'd just keep adding more and more information until, you know, it, get, it just got bigger and bigger. Um, and so now, even though it's not um, as epically large as some of those databases, I think it's got its own charm to it because um, – my my whole goal was to make something browsable. I wanted people to pick it up and just read through it. Right, I didn't yeah. want it to be a database. I wanted it to just be like, you just page through and you say, oh, look, here's here's this guy who wrote these games. And look, it says he wrote this with this other guy. I'll go look at that. And you just start bouncing around the text file. And that's what I wanted. And so even though it's not the the the, the biggest of these crazy lists anymore, I like the fact that it's it's very focused on a certain era and it's it's very approachable. Yeah, that's the way I use it. I just, you know, find, you know, some author that I know and I'm like, oh, really wrote that. And part of it was to see what people did later. So it's it's got this quirk in it that it's not just stuff written during the, the pre-Nintendo 8-bit era. It's uh, the g- people who wrote games in that era and then everything they did after that. So they're all they're all grandfathered in. <laughs> yeah, so looking at, you know, looking at say like Sid Meier you know, wrote all those flight simulators for the Atari. And then of course went on to civilization. And and it's, it's cool with some of them where you don't, you, it's just some obscure games you don't remember. And then you look later and, and realize, wow, that person went on and did, uh, you know, a super Nintendo game, or they did this really famous PC game that I've heard of, but early on they did stuff for the Atari program exchange that I, I didn't know about. So that's, that was kind of cool. Just, I mean, that's the whole point was to see, to see how people's design skills advanced, where they where they started and where it took them. Right. Yeah. And then, so through those through the connections you developed creating this list, is that how you got connected with the um, the folks to do the interviews for Halcyon Days? Right. Um, it was at some point I realized, uh, wow, I have a lot of contact information here. I mean, again, this was in the early days of the web, so it's not like I could just say, oh, I want to go to John Harris's website. Right. Uh, it was more that I was reading Usenet 
And in the Atari 8-bit group, there was a post by somebody named John Harris who <laughs> looked like it could be that John Harris. So I sent him an email and I said, are you the John Harris <laughs> did something? And he goes, wow, nobody's called me the John Harris in a long time. <laughs> so uh, just through random, uh, random snipings like that and uh, all the information I'd collected from people emailing me, I realized this is actually an interesting situation that I have a lot of contact information for the people who wrote these games, uh, which is not typically accessible. Most mm -hmm. people wouldn't have this. So, um, so I had the idea to, 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 to interview people and, and put it all together as a book. And I got mostly through it. Uh, and I'd been talking, you know, trying to interest some publishers and I wasn't really getting anywhere because this was back in the nineties. Everybody just wanted, um, how to get on the internet or you know, oh, yeah. how to learn C++. And there wasn't, there wasn't the uh, general interest computer book sections you'll see now. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wasn't really going anywhere. So I set it aside and didn't, didn't, didn't go anywhere with it. And then at the time, my, my wife and I were, were running this indie Mac game business. Um, we were making some games for the, for the Macintosh. Mm -hmm. And we had one game called Bumbler, uh, which was this this action game, and it was it was being sold, and we were trying to think of what's another product we could sell so we can make money and stay in business. And then I remembered Halcyon Days and thought, we're already set up to, we're physically shipping discs to people and getting you know handling credit cards and all that. How could I make take our infrastructure and make it work? And I had the idea of using HTML as the formatting language. Uh, and so the whole book would be a bunch of HTML files that got mailed to people, essentially a website on a disk. And that seemed like it would work. And so I fired up the project again. I finished off the interviews that I hadn't gotten done before. I edited everything, figured out how to format it all. Uh, and that's, then I put it out. Uh, and it was, it got a pretty big response. It got written up in Wired at one point. Um, yeah. It got a lot of you know attention on Usenet, obviously, but it, it got it got a lot of buzz um, when it when it first came out. Um, even though it's very strange in retrospect to have a disc uh, a website on disc, <laughs> but at the time there wasn't PDFs weren't an option because PDF readers were so slow. If you you, know, you couldn't really send a Word file because people wouldn't have Word. Text was ugly. Yeah. Uh, so it actually came up you know came out nicely as a as a decent option for 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 publishing as kind of an early ebook. Yeah. I, I didn't run into it until, you know, much, much later, obviously when you, when you posted it on the web, I don't know. Do you, do you find copies floating up, floating around on the, on the Usenet that people hadn't purchased or. I'm sure there were some, but I, I never found them. I didn't look, it didn't really bother me. I mean, it's the same as with the game I was selling. Somebody could have put that game up on mm -hmm. the internet too. And I'm sure that they did somewhere, but I yeah. didn't, didn't seem to matter. Cause that was a, you know, when I was a kid in the 800, I was a, kind of a pirate, you know, and not thinking about the effects of all this stuff. And it's one of my big regrets now, of course, is, you know, the piracy killed the 800 market, really. Yeah, I just had faith that if people, the people who I was targeting would be interested. Um, and so a lot of it felt more like they're supporting me, not right. just buying bits on a, on a disc. So yeah. In the end, it worked out. I mean, it didn't. I don't remember how many copies it sold. It wasn't some giant, you know, runaway massive seller or anything. But it, for a little retro gaming project, it did all right. 
and I was really glad to hear, you know, positive feedback from people and, and then hear from other people who were tangentially mentioned in the book and so on. Oh yeah. Like particularly the, uh, the John Harris interview where he talks about how Stephen Levy kind of misrepresented some of the stuff in, um, in the book hackers. Yeah, I think like, he had talked a little bit about some of that stuff on Usenet before, but I, I he did kind of get um, poorly represented in Hackers, I think, and I think he had a lot he had a lot to say about it. Yeah. Also, I, I kind of feel bad in a way that it didn't end up as a full printed book that was right alongside Hackers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I suspect when when he saw the result, he might have gone, "Oh, that's not as that's not as a uh, you know big professional shiny product as I expected," but. Now it's on the it's on the uh, the web and people have read what he has to say so I feel pretty good about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had actually not read Hackers until after I read your interview with him. I don't. Yeah, I, I I certainly think you've done a great service here with all this. I, I really can't say enough about how much I've enjoyed hearing about all these all these guys. Well, thanks. I mean, it, it's uh, as the time you know gets further away from that era. Um, I'm I'm glad I wrote down some of that stuff when I did because I don't think I'd remember it now. Yeah, and also uh, unfortunately, you know, we've lost a couple of people like Danielle Berry, you know, she's gone and yeah, so that that you were able to record some of this stuff. I had always always wished I'd been able to talk to Bill Williams, um, mm-hmm. but he died in 98, I think, and I didn't have any contact information prior to him, but uh yeah, he's the one one person I really wished I could have talked to. You got a, a definitely a, a well-represented Atari 800 set of people, and then you got some arcade guys. Eugene Jarvis, he's a he's a certainly a, a huge name in the arcade area. Robotron. And yeah, I think I I unintentionally skew toward Atari because of <laughs> the name the names I remember. But uh, I tried really hard to, to to mix it up and and get get more people who worked on other stuff. Yeah, you got you know Bill Budge and you know, a, few, a few guys I I hadn't heard of because I you know I was pretty much focused on the Atari, but. I mean, from yeah, from my point of view, I'm certainly glad you got all the Atari people. <laughs> yeah, there were a few. Like uh, Steve DeFrisco is an interesting case because I ended up working with him later. I mean, just really? in my day job. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when I saw his his, um, I was actually helping with uh, looking at resumes of, of programmers, and when I saw his, it's like, huh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I called him up just because you know I knew who he was and and what he did and so on. So that was interesting. That's funny. Selfishly, had you thought about doing any more interviews with <laughs> people? I'd certainly I've, like to have it have more. <laughs> I've thought several times about doing either a deluxe version, which doesn't use 1995 era HTML, <laughs> um, or uh, you know, add some more stuff or both. But it's it's never been a big big priority, yeah. um, especially since now there's so many retro game sites out there well that's um, true yeah yeah when you did this this was there was really nothing of this scope at all was there yeah and that was the idea is i wanted to do something get this out there because i hadn't seen anything like it right at the time there were only a handful of retro game oriented projects at all um yeah that's true it really hadn't kicked in at that point it, was, it wasn't retro it was just old i do uh still in bursts work on the giant list um just because i feel like well, like I said earlier, I still I still like it for what it is, even though I know that trying to make it complete and and have every name under the sun is is a, a hopeless task. <laughs> but I did recently go in there and at least clean it up a bit and try to get rid of a lot of the question marks. And uh, finally, it's got some decent formatting, so it's not some horrible, ugly text file. I guess one last question about that is just kind of your cutoff is kind of people who 
programmed retro stuff, and then if they program retro stuff, then you you kind of track them forward, but you don't really start on people who didn't do retro games. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. It, it's fairly arbitrary, but the the rule I came up with was anybody that actually worked on a game prior to uh, the NES. Um, that's what the core of the list is. Mm. But then the stuff that they did later shows up. I mean, it's and it, it's uh, it gets really messy with later games because if you look up. The cre- like, go look up the credits for the, the most recent Assassin's Creed, and there's 900 <laughs> or 1,000 people. You'll be watching the credits. You know, you get yeah. the game, and then you watch the credits for an hour. It's, uh, it's like- and at that point, I don't know how valuable it is. Like, <laughs> does it really matter that this guy was one person on a team of, you know, 42 people who animated animals? I don't know. Um, yeah. And so I've always, I, I, I'm, I've been hesitant to, or I just don't really want to um, expand into that 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 time period or anything. Is it just not very? Right, it, it's yeah. just it's it, you get away from the the uh, one person with the idea, and they make a you know they make a game out of it, and that's what's cool about it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's even games from back then. If you look at some of the Atari coin ops, you'll look up uh, you look them up, and you'll find that they had thirty people working on them, which. That's not common, but it, it did happen. There were there were cases like that, and in that case, it it comes, becomes hard to distill it down to a name or two names. Yeah, but yeah, but to become like IMDb for video games is just is too much of a task, you know. Well, there's there's sites that try to do that, and more power to them. But I, I'm not interested at all because it's just it's it doesn't even make sense anymore. Like yeah. I, it's, it, that the 900 plus people that worked on those Assassin's Creed games is not an exaggeration. There are 900. <laughs> what's the point and so uh even even on lots of games from 10 years ago 20 years ago still pretty enormous lists so it's not um you know and you also have it's it's pretty common practice for you to list not only all the programmers and all the designers and all the artists but then you list in your credits all the people who worked in your office and brought the coffee and you know, clean the floors and the, the, your kids and yeah, uh, production babies, it, it, you know? Yeah. yeah it, and that's all, <laughs> that's all totally fine to, to put in there, but it, it means that game credits, you know, the way that they are in the giant list don't, don't really matter that much anymore. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very different, different, uh, situation. Yeah. There's, there's definitely something special about the, the games that were, you know, really the, the, the focus of one person and the, it, you know, kind of everything sprung out of, out of that one one person's design and and you know mostly implemented by them and yeah yeah sometimes the art yeah music and i mean comparing and contrasting the development back then to development now is just so different it's just not i don't know what, what's your favorite thing about developing games now compared to back then well i mean it's it's very broad right now if you look at what people are doing for say the the iphone and the ipad mm-hmm. it's got a lot in common with the old style yeah um, lots of small groups making things which is which is very cool um the the overall appeal to it's always been making something that other people can can play uh it might not be as direct as me working on something in my living room and just mailing it off and then other people get to type it in but it's still there um just knowing that the little details you're making about a mission or a level or or an animation or whatever is is stuff that people are going to see that's actually really cool because not a lot of uh not a lot of jobs let you do that 
Yeah. You know, the, what, the big telecom stuff's all behind the scenes. When I did that, nobody could ever understand what I did. I, <laughs> they'd say, what do you do? And it's like, well, I work on the telecommunications computers. And they're like, well, what, is, what do you mean telecommunication computers? I said, well, you, <laughs> you pick up the phone and you talk to somebody else. There's a computer in the middle that handles all the connection. Like, no, it just goes right to the other person. <laughs> uh, and this is just forget it. The, 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 <laughs> you're right. It is. It's just a connection. There's no computer. <laughs> but, uh, it's uh, it, games are very direct, just like music. You know, everybody can you hear a song. You know, somebody played on that song. You know, somebody wrote that song. That's that's awesome. Uh, games are the same way. Yeah. Now with today's sort of mobile games, yeah, you're kind of getting back to that individual connection. There is a, a big difference now in terms of a, of a lot or the quantity of games. You know, just thinking about what it would take to make a database of every game that there ever is. Um, on the, I saw a statistic recently, it pretty much works out that on iPhone, there's more, the entire giant lists, ver, um, number of games comes out every month on the iPhone. <laughs> that's, uh, and so that's, uh, that's a lot of games. Yeah. How do you get a game noticed in that environment nowadays? I, I don't know. I don't, know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh. It's cool that people are trying, but that's that's like back, people used to talk about how flooded the market was back in the Atari twenty six hundred days, and this is like off the charts crazy. Yeah, talk about the shovelware that came out for the twenty six hundred. You know, and there was what was there five six six hundred games that came out for the twenty six hundred. Yeah, you're you're getting the entire equivalent of the entire twenty six hundred library being released about every three days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is a different world we live in for sure. <laughs> Well, wow, James. I think this is yeah, this is great. Um, yeah, thanks so much for for your time. I and again, I just want to say thanks for the for both Halcyon Days and the Giant List. I, they're both great resources, and I it was great fun to read all those interviews. And uh, I use the Giant List all the time in my re- research as well. So, oh, well, you're welcome. I'm I'm glad they've they've still held up. <laughs> yeah, so I enjoyed talking to you. I've, I've enjoyed playing all your games, and um, I'm gonna enlist my wife and play current events here and see if I can <laughs> see if we get the two player version going. Oh, good luck. <laughs> but uh, anyway, thanks again, and uh, enjoy talking with you. All right, have a good day. Thanks, you too. So I want to thank James again for taking the time to talk for talking with me. I had a, I had a lot of fun. It's really cool to hear about the whole process of submitting an article and getting it published, and just seeing your own writing in a magazine must have been an amazing experience. I was not able to enlist my wife to play. Um, the two-player game, the Electroids. He means current events. The Electroids is a one-player game. So I still haven't played that one, but I played all the other ones. Uh, like I said before, my favorite is um, Uncle Henry's Nuclear Waste Dump. It's kind of a lot like um, Bill Kendrick's game, Gem Drop. Well, it's in that same feel anyway. It's like, you know, sort of the single-player tetris sort of game that you can pick up and play. So yeah, I'll include links in the show notes to all his interviews, to all his games on... Um, Atari Mania, and all the articles he wrote on Antic and Analog. And I found a couple of his technical tips as well, so I'll include some links there. And then, of course, to the giant list of classic game programmers and Halcyon Days. Well, that'll about do it for this episode. As we leave here today, here's some music suggested by the Return of No Quarter. This is the pokey version of Still Alive from the Portal soundtrack. The pokey version's by... Mikhail Spilovsky. I always like to hear feedback. If you have feedback you want to send me, you can drop me an email at feedback at playermissile.com or on Twitter, I'm at Atari 8 Bit Games. If you 
feel like going over and leaving a review on iTunes, that'd be great. It helps people with similar interests find the show. And for other retro-competing podcasts, check out the Throwback Network, of which I'm a part. They're at throwbacknetwork.net. But yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do next episode. It's got a few things sort of percolating, but I don't know. It'll be a surprise. I know Missile Command is coming up at some point. But regardless of the format, I will see you next episode.